Welcome to Question Period and Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, Trump in trouble. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. Battling COVID-19, threatening to charge Joe Biden with crimes, ratcheting up rhetoric against China. What's really going on inside the White House? Weeks from Election Day is the political chaos and the pandemic threat making the U.S. vulnerable to opponents. Donald Trump's former national security advisor, who now says the president is unfit for office, John Bolton, joins us with a warning of what he sees as a dangerous period ahead. And then testing failures. Nobody should have to pay uh, for essential medical services, particularly things like uh, like uh, COVID tests. As COVID cases surge in Canada's major cities and lineups for tests grow, should Canadians be allowed to pay for a private test? Or is this the start of two-tier healthcare? And why is Canada running out of key testing chemicals? We'll ask Procurement Minister Anita Anand on the shortages in the second wave, and if the drugs the US president says are a cure will be available in Canada. Plus, cancel campaign. The next leader of the Green Party of Canada, Enemy Paul. She made history as the first black and the second Jewish leader of a federal party in Canada, but she has no seat in the House of Commons. So why is Annamie Paul calling for a by-election in her riding to be cancelled? And why did she tell her new party to vote against the Liberal speech from the throne? Green Party leader Annamie Paul joins us today. And the second wave and the second lockdown, CTV's infectious disease specialist, Dr. Abdusharkawi, joins us on the failure to contain the virus and what needs to happen now. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. But we have medicines right now, and I call them a cure. I went into the hospital a week ago. I was very sick, and I took this medicine, and it was incredible. It was incredible. I, w I could have walked out the following day sooner. It was incredible the impact it had. Facing the final few weeks of the presidential campaign, stricken with COVID-19, but still appearing without a mask often, trapped inside a White House that has become a viral hot zone, President Donald Trump has erupted with some volcanic rhetoric, threatening payback to China for the pandemic, alleging that Presidents Obama and Joe Biden should be arrested for an attempted coup, telling people that a cure for COVID-19 is coming very soon, and don't be afraid of it despite the fact that over 211,000 Americans have been killed by coronavirus. Even the prestigious and non-political New England Journal of Medicine wrote an unprecedented editorial saying the president has taken a crisis and, quote, turned it into a tragedy. Is the pandemic and the escalating anti-China rhetoric a national security threat to the United States? And how will the president act in these last few weeks of the campaign? To find out, we're joined now by John Bolton. He's the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush. And of course, the man who spent 17 months as the national security advisor to President Donald Trump and wrote about his time there in a new book called The Room Where It Happened. Now, I should say the Trump administration is suing Ambassador Bolton over the book, claiming it contains classified information, which the ambassador denies. Ambassador, good to see you again. Good to have you back on the program. Uh, you were the national security advisor. You sat in the room a lot with Donald Trump as he spoke, as he tweeted. You witnessed his personality. How is the Donald Trump you saw during the pan different from the one we see right now in these, these weeks? 
Well, I, I think much of the behavior he's demonstrated in the past couple or three weeks is honestly not that different than a lot of the behavior I saw in private, just another day at the office, uh, in a sense. Uh, some people have speculated that uh, in the past few days it's because of the steroids that he's receiving as part of his uh, the extraordinary care they're quite appropriately giving the president for his COVID-19 infection. I, I don't think he needs steroids to behave this way. This is how he acts. He focuses uh, entirely on his reelection with less than a month to go. That's uh, probably understandable as well. But, but this has been his focus, I think, during the entire first term of his presidency, not policies, but doing things that will get him reelected. And now, obviously, the pressure is on. If you were sitting there looking at Donald Trump now, looking at what he's saying, how he's responded to the pandemic, how would you assess it? Is he a national, is, it, is there a national security crisis going on? Well, I think there has been really since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. I, I think you have to treat this uh, uh, as, a, as a crisis akin to what you would see in a biological weapons attack. I mean, the epidemiology is, is not that dissimilar. And I'm, I'm very worried going forward that a lot of rogue states and terrorist groups are watching the inadequate U.S. response to coronavirus and saying, who needs nuclear weapons when we can, when we can cause uh, a lot of damage to the United States through biological weapons? Uh, he never had a strategy to deal with it. He doesn't have a strategy to deal with it now. And uh, when, when he himself was diagnosed with the coronavirus, I think he completely mishandled it. I'm just being coldly political at this point. Obviously, nobody wishes this disease on anybody, and we all hope he recovers. But uh, he didn't show any empathy for the 200,000-plus Americans who have died and their families and friends. Uh, he started talking about how he was a perfectly healthy specimen and very young and, and giving the impression that it was not the extraordinary medical care he got, something no other American could get, but his own personal victory over coronavirus. I, I just I can't back this up with information from public opinion polling. I can only tell you my personal gut feeling is that this is uh, having very negative political consequences for Trump, and it will show up on November the 3rd. Uh, he told Bob Woodward in the book Rage, he, back in March, and there's audio tapes, that he was actively downplaying the severity of the virus, even though he knew it was deadly. You then said, this guy's unfit for the job. Now you're looking at him today. Is Donald Trump fit to be the president of the United States in your view? No, no, he is not. And uh, for a lot of reasons, I, I don't I don't think he governs with any philosophy or strategy or policy. Uh, I've described life inside the White House as like living inside a pinball machine that hasn't gotten better with age. I, I believed uh, when, when I took on the job as national security advisor that uh, the, the gravity of the job, the weight of his responsibilities would have an effect on him. That that turned out to be completely wrong. There's much that he doesn't know, and he has no interest in learning it. And uh, I'm afraid all of these uh, tendencies and, and many more will only get worse if he wins a second term, since he will be relieved of the main political concern he's had for the first four years, namely getting reelected in November. Once that's behind him, he's, he's on his own. Are you concerned that given the chaos going on in the White House, that there's going to be more electoral interference to undermine uh, the competency not only of the president but the internal structures of the United States. Will there be intervention do you think? 
Well, I have no doubt that Russia and to perhaps a lesser extent China and Iran are trying to interfere, have tried to interfere and will continue to do so up to election day and even after it if there are recounts and contests. But I'm also very convinced that the elements of the U.S. government that deal with this, the Defense Department, the intelligence community, the FBI, Homeland Security, uh, are all well prepared. But, but you raise an important point. It's, it's critical not to see this interference simply as favoring one candidate or the other. That alone could be disinformation from Russia, let's say. What's really destructive is undermining public confidence in the integrity of our electoral system, the integrity of our Constitution. And when we say things that undercut it ourselves, we're doing our adversaries' business. So I well, think, well, the I think president, people need the president to take a deep saying, breath here. It was the president who's out there almost every day saying mail-in ballots, this is an election that's going to be fraudulent. I mean, he's the one that continues to say that. Uh, Ambassador uh, Bolton, are you concerned, as many people have asked, that there might not be, in the event Joe Biden wins, there might not be a peaceful transition of power. Does that concern you? Well, I, I think we need to, to, to be very careful about this. I think what Trump has said, uh, for example, that he couldn't lose unless there were fraud, I think that's very dangerous. Uh, he can lose very easily, as it, uh, as it may well turn out. The polls are not with him. The polls have been wrong before. But he could easily lose in a completely free and fair election. So if he's trying to lay the basis to do something illicit, I, I'm very troubled by that. Donald Trump said of you, and, and I've read your book, he said, look, uh, many of the ridiculous statements Bolton attributes to me were never made. It's pure fiction. He's just trying to get even because I fired him like a sick puppy. He called you grossly incompetent. He's called you a liar. He's saying he fired you because of all that. Um, what's your response to the president? Well, I'd be happy to match my credibility against Donald Trump's any day of the week. Uh, and as for all the, all the names he's called me, look, it's juvenile. It's embarrassing to the office of the president. It's not really worth a response. He'll get a chance to write his book. I wrote as honestly and as accurately as I could, and uh, it's out there for people to consider. You were criticized a lot for saying all this about a president that you ended up working for and then withholding it. Uh, do you re did you make a mistake in accepting the job to work for Donald Trump and defend those policies in the end? Do you feel like, my God, I misread the man. He's more of a danger than I thought. Well, I thought it was certainly worth uh, taking the chance to try and, uh, and move the country's policies along the right lines. I don't regret that at all. Uh, the only real regret I have is that I wasn't more successful with him and uh, wasn't more persuasive. A lot of very good people have tried to, uh, to uh, advise Trump. Uh, I haven't agreed with all of them and all the particulars, uh, but I, I think his administration will go down uh, in terms of management and uh, governance really is one of the worst in U.S. history. All right, we'll have more with Ambassador John Bolton later in the program because he gives a stark warning to Justin Trudeau on the threat posed by the Chinese telecom company Huawei to Canada. But first, President Trump cites an experimental drug as the key to his COVID recovery. Will that drug be available in Canada? And with the second wave of the virus underway, why are there so many shortages of key testing chemicals? We put those questions to Procurement Minister Anita Anand next on Question Period.
some provinces have had to uh, send tests to California to be processed. They've done such a great job that people are waiting 10 days for their results. And now we're seeing Quebec schools having to use private firms against the notion of publicly funded healthcare in Canada because of their failure to procure tests. So as Canada's largest cities struggle to grapple with rising COVID-19 cases, a stunning development. There are some major shortages of key testing chemicals. They're called reagents. That's a shortage that is preventing thousands of tests from being analyzed and completed in provinces like Ontario. How did the federal government, who's in charge of procuring reagents, let this happen in the middle of a second wave that doctors predicted would come? Meantime, the president of the United States is touting a series of experimental drugs. He actually calls them cures. They're therapeutics. Uh, are they going to be available in Canada, or what about another vaccine? Is it really just months away, as Health Canada is saying? Let's find out. Joining us now is the person in charge of procurement, Procurement Minister Anita Anand. Minister, a happy Thanksgiving. Hope you and your loved ones are doing well, and, and thanks for joining us. Let, let me just start with those numbers. Shocking numbers, frankly, coming out of Ontario and Quebec. Huge spikes in COVID-19 cases, a, a new lockdown, closures of indoor dining, gyms. Doctors predicted this second wave. We knew this was coming. Was there a failure to prepare for this and, and make sure that this didn't happen? Let me start by saying that the federal government has been procuring reagent and swabs and all other types of supplies and PPE since the very beginning and that our procurements have gone relatively well. I will say that we have enough reagent, for example, uh, to test 200,000 people per day. Where the issue perhaps arises is that we're not the only ones doing procurements. The provinces and territories themselves are also engaged with suppliers to procure PPE and other items like reagent and swabs. But look, uh, there's a reagent shortage which is stopping testing. Testing is critical. Ontario is sending swabs done at pharmacies to California because there's a backlog of at least 68,000 tests. Uh, people are waiting in long lines. When you can't get a test, you've got to stay home. It's having an economic impact. Uh, there's not enough lab technicians. Someone's got to hold the, the responsibility for this. this. This is looking like a big failure, Minister. How do you explain it? We have, under the Save Restart Agreement, ensured that the provinces have over $4 billion for contract tracing and, uh, contact tracing and testing. We have also provided up to $2 billion for municipalities themselves in the Safe Restart Agreement. And so we are providing a number of different types of supports. PPE and other supplies through the Public Health Agency of Canada is just one way. But in addition, we're providing financial supports so that the provinces have the financial resources that they need to make their own procurements and devise their own testing strategies, which is well so, within their constitutional Okay, so I'm just trying, so is the federal government saying, look, you guys had the resources, the long lineups of testing, the lack of reagent, the fact that we're sending cal swabs to California, the fact that it doesn't look like we were ready to handle this second wave that doctors predicted five, six months ago. Are you saying it's the province's fault? What I'm saying as the Federal Minister of Public Services and Procurement is that my job is to procure 
supplies and PPE, and we have now over 2 billion items of PPE secured, including supplies relating to reagent and swabs. I am doing exactly what I need to be doing for Canadians in this pandemic, including in the area of rapid testing, which we have over the past two weeks procured about 28 million rapid tests for Canadians. In addition to those procurements, the provinces and territories themselves mm. have been given from the federal government the resources to make their own additional procurements. To, I, I appreciate everyone's working hard, but Canadians are still wondering what's going on. Let's just talk about testing. There's now uh, a concern that one way to alleviate the testing backlog is paying for private tests. You know, you and I work in Ottawa. You can go across the river to Quebec and pay 250 bucks and get a rapid test. You can't do, for most Canadians, they can't do it. MPs have availed themselves of it. I know Aaron O'Toole used one. Other MPs have used one. Maybe the Prime Minister used one when he got tested back in September. Is your government prepared to say one way to alleviate the long waits around testing is to allow uh, private paid testing to happen, the same thing that MPs are allowed to use? So the equal access to healthcare principle is fundamental to our Canadian healthcare system. In addition to that, the provinces and territories have the jurisdiction to dispense or distribute health care services. And so what the Minister of Health is doing in response to this issue that you're raising is to examine the issue, to try to understand exactly what is happening and to establish whether further precautions and um, moves need to be taken. Let me just quickly, I want to get to Donald Trump because he'd been touting this therapeutic drugs like Regeneron as miracle. He calls them cures. Doctors actually call them therapeutics. They're still in early clinical studies, but we're getting a lot of questions. Regeneron, it's, as I understand it, it's been used on fewer than 300 people. Is Canada considering drugs like Regeneron to fight COVID-19? Will it be available in Canada? As he's promising, it will be available in the U.S.? Well, lots there in that question, Evan. Let me just say that on vaccines and therapeutics, there are expert task forces that the federal government has set up. And in procurement, we are taking our marching orders from those task forces, as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada. And so on vaccines, for example, we procured 282 million doses of vaccines on the advice of the vaccine task right. force. And on therapeutics, similarly, we procured remdesivir, for Canadians and we are continuing to look at the therapeutics uh, that they are recommending to us to procure in conjunction with the Public Health Agency of Canada. Last question, uh, Health Canada had a technical briefing this week and they said that uh, we are months, not years away from a vaccine. Can you give us details? What is the main vaccine? I know there's the AstraZeneca uh, proposal to uh, Health Canada. What vaccine and how close is it? Again, at this stage, my role as procurement minister is to explain to you and express to you what we have procured. And that is 282 doses of vaccines under six agreements of multiple different types of vaccines, NRA, for example, uh, protein supplements, as well as, um, as, as, as well as additional types of vaccines. I will say that the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, 
has been recommending these different types of vaccines to us, and then Health Canada, as a separate regulatory body, then has to review the vaccines that we have procured. Minister Anand, I really appreciate this. I know there's an enormous amount of interest in this stuff, and I appreciate your time. I wish you a great Thanksgiving, and thanks, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it very much. Happy Thanksgiving, Evan. Have a great one. Take yeah, care. You too. Stay safe. All right, that is the Minister of Procurement, Anita Anand. Coming up next on Question Period, should the second wave of COVID stop a key by-election that could give the new Green Party leader a seat in the House of Commons? The leader herself says stop it. We'll find out why when the new Green Party leader, Annamie Paul, joins us next on that and the shocking amount of racism and anti-Semitism she experienced in her race to win the new job. Stay right here with Question Period. She's made history. First, black Canadian leader of a federal party, the second, Jewish Canadian leader, Annamie Paul. A human rights lawyer in Toronto, the former advisor to the International Criminal Court, replaces Elizabeth May as the new leader of the Green Party of Canada, and she's already drawn some green lines, telling her party to vote against the Liberals' speech in the throne last week. But how will the Green Party under Paul's leadership be different than it was under Elizabeth May, who's been the leader since 2006? Paul, who starts the job without a seat in the House of Commons, uh, is in a tough by-election race in Toronto Centre, the seat formerly held by Bill Morneau. She ran last time there and lost, but given the escalating pandemic, should there even be a by-election there right now? Let's find out. Joining us now is the new Green Party leader, Annamie Paul. First of all, congratulations on the race. Um, and I'm going to get to the fact that you've broken some major glass ceilings here. But where you are right now, where I'm speaking to you, COVID-19 cases are spiking in Toronto. Is it safe to hold a by-election right now? Uh, absolutely not. You know, this is a community. I'm right at the corner of Sherbourne and Wellesley. Uh, this is one. This is St. Jamestown. This is a low-income, racialized community that is already struggling with some of the highest rates of COVID infection in the entire city and therefore in the entire country. And uh, the last thing that they need at this time when they should be focused on their health uh, and protecting uh, their loved ones is a, an unnecessary by-election being called under completely unsafe conditions. So are you asking Justin Trudeau to delay the by-election until uh, the COVID curve flattens? Absolutely. We are in the second wave. We've been told that we're likely to hit the peak of infections uh, later this month. Uh, it is irresponsible to hold a, an election. I don't see how you can hold a free and democratic and fair uh, and most of all safe uh, by-election under these circumstances. So I want to see a, uh, an immediate suspension of this by-election, the by-election in York Centre, uh, until we have the new Elections Canada rules that will make it safer and until we've passed uh, through this uh, second wave. It might make it hard for you to be effective if you don't have a seat in the House. So if you can't run there, if that's delayed, and, and who knows how long this pandemic runs, would you be willing to run elsewhere? Well, we know that Elections Canada has been working really, really hard to develop the rules and guidelines that are going to allow us to have much safer elections even during the pandemic. Uh, so I want to see what those are. I'm sure that uh, they've done a lot of good work on that. And it's another reason why I don't understand uh, where the rush is coming from to hold these two by-elections. Uh, so whether we're in the pandemic for a short period or much longer, I know that a few months from now, it's very likely we'll have 
have figured out the protocols that we need to hold these elections uh, more safely. Uh, I'm prepared to run wherever our members and our council uh, tells me is the best place and the best time to run in Canada. Let's just talk about the impact that, that COVID's having. You didn't vote for the speech from the throne, and a lot of people were surprised mm -hmm. by that, to be candid. Um, tell us why. Was it criticism of how this government has handled the pandemic and the response? Was it a criticism of their environmental policies? What was it? The Green Party default mode, particularly in a time of pandemic, particularly in a time of urgency, is to look for all the ways that we can cooperate and collaborate across party lines. And I think that's what Canadians demand. Uh, our, our expectation was that we were going to uh, see a speech from the throne that we could absolutely support. But I'm standing again in a neighborhood where the hospitals are already uh, getting overwhelmed with uh, patients that should have been transferred to long-term care and can't be because of the new outbreaks of infection in those long-term care facilities. So if you don't have a plan uh, to deal with that, uh, that urgent issue, uh, then we can't give you our support. We don't want one more life lost that way. And then we need a guaranteed, uh, minimum, guaranteed livable income rather. A guaranteed livable income is the thing that is going to provide us with that uh, social safety net to make sure that no one is uh, going to fall behind in the future. I'm very confused to see the Prime Minister not put that in the speech from the throne, especially because we know that the Liberal caucus has made that their number one policy priority. Okay, but two things. One, long-term care homes are a provincial jurisdiction, so uh, mm -hmm. they, they may have national standards, mm -hmm. but they've given the military there and they've given a lot of aid. Uh, and number two, both the Liberals and the NDP have talked about a guaranteed livable income. As you know, it's unbelievably expensive, um, but they've already extended not only paid sick leave, but they've uh, expanded EI to give folks uh, $2,000 a month for the next 26 weeks. So that wasn't enough to secure your vote? Uh, even with the expansion of EI, and that's something we support, there were, there's no question that there were good things in the speech from the throne. But an expansion of EI is not a plan to cover every single person in Canada. And in a country as wealthy as ours, as developed as ours, there's simply no excuse for not having a, a program that is going to make sure that every single person can live in dignity and security now and in the future. Uh, so it just wasn't enough. In terms of long-term care, uh, I don't think that there is one person uh, that could agree that uh, the question of jurisdiction should prevent our provincial governments and our federal government from coming together to talk about how we are going to protect lives now. And so, you know, it's not enough to say that we're going to talk in the future about national standards. This is a country where our levels of government have been able to come together to create national programs to protect people. What we want to see is long-term care brought in under the Canada Health Act. And we want to see the levels of government sitting down immediately to talk about how that's going to happen and how they're going to make sure that not one more person dies in long-term care um, until we get to that place. I just want to also just remind our viewers that through, through this pandemic, uh, you lost your father. He was in a long-term care home. And I, I just want to, first of all, send our condolences on that. So this issue is important to you on a personal and on a political level. And, and to be... And I'd be remiss if I didn't yeah. talk a bit about the personal and the political. I mean, you made history as the first black Canadian leader, the second Jewish Canadian leader. You and I have spoken over the last number of days, and you expressed tremendous surprise and sadness at the level of racism and the level of anti-Semitism 
that you experienced. No one should be surprised that exists, but that it was so poignantly directed at you. Can you tell our viewers what happened and, 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 and why that surprised you so much? Well, you know, I'm, I, I was born here, I grew up here, and, uh, you know, I grew up in a very multicultural environment uh, where you learn very early on to live with and to enjoy the company of people from all different walks of life, all different kinds of racial, uh, ethnic, cultural backgrounds. And so you know that it exists, there's no question, and my eyes were open, uh, but I wasn't expecting these sorts of attacks to be so out in the open. I wasn't expecting for them to be so persistent. Um, and I wasn't expecting as much silence uh, as there was around, uh, around those attacks. And so there is no question that we still have work to do on racism, on anti-black racism. Uh, we have work to do on anti-Semitism. Uh, the very best thing that everyone can do for people like me is when they see it, uh, to call it out, uh, to speak out against it, because the silence is really the thing that I found that emboldened uh, the hate uh, throughout uh, the race. I got to leave it there, but we'll find out uh, about that by-election and your call to have it suspended in the midst of this COVID outbreak. Uh, great pleasure to have you on the program and uh, look forward to more conversations. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Evan. Always a pleasure and, and invite me back soon. All right, that is Green Party leader Anime Paul. Coming up on our program, he says Donald Trump is unfit to be president, but now his former national security advisor pulls back the curtain on how Canada got caught between the U.S. and China in the Meng Wanzhou case, and he has a stark warning for Justin Trudeau about security threats from Huawei. Part two of our interview with the former national security advisor to Donald Trump, John Bolton, is next. Stay right here with Question Period. We are making tremendous progress with this horrible disease that was sent over by China. China will pay a big price for what they did to the world and to us. Welcome back to Question Period. Donald Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, has a warning for Canada. Don't let the Chinese telecom company Huawei be part of your 5G system. It's a warning Ambassador Bolton has made before, but while he was working for Donald Trump, was he part of using Canada as a pawn in the U.S. trade war against China? Mr. Bolton, of course, went on to write the book about his time working for Donald Trump called In the Room. And as he told us earlier in this program, he now sees President Trump as unfit for office. In part two of our interview, I began by asking Mr. Bolton if he now sees Donald Trump as a danger to the rest of the world. Well, I think the damage that he's done to the U.S. and internationally in his first term can, can be corrected, and I'm actually optimistic it can be corrected fairly quickly. But I'm very worried about what eight years would bring, and it's one reason why this election, for the first time in my adult political life, I'm not going to vote for the Republican nominee for president. I'm not going to vote for Biden either. I'm going to write in somebody. But I definitely believe Trump should be a one-term president. Uh, as he gets closer to the election, I do think uh, as the likelihood of defeat becomes clearer to him uh, and in our long transition period before January the 20th, if he loses, uh, I do worry about what, he, what steps he might take for revenge or, or just uh, out of, out of uh, reaction to, to being a loser, which he hates to be. I think that uh, transition period in time of defeat could also be very troubling. Ambassador, just quickly about Canada. Ca Canadians, you were in the room during that time, some of the, 
the issues with Canada. Canadians can't understand why the U.S. would do things like slap painful tariffs on steel and aluminum in the guise of national security. Um, this was part of this pattern that Canadians are looking at saying, is the U.S. alienating their, their closest allies? Um, can you explain why, what the strategy behind that was and, 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 and why under the guise of national security that kind of thing could happen? Well, there is no strategy. And I know, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but Trump likes tariffs. Uh, he just likes them because he can impose them without having to get consent of Congress under various provisions in our trade laws. Uh, he thinks that the U.S. has been taken advantage of by some of our closest allies in many, many years of trade negotiations. And I think there, there's something to the fact that our trade negotiators haven't been the, the most astute over a long period of time. Uh, but he also thinks the U.S. is constantly taken advantage of, and, and he wants to show that he can respond strongly. But it has nothing to do with strategy. And uh, uh, it, ha it has a lot to do, I think, with him showing how assertive he is. The steel and aluminum tariffs are a good example. I, I think uh, there's a case to be made economically. They actually hurt the United States. Yeah. Uh, and they certainly make it difficult to unite against uh, the real threat we face in common economically and politically, which is China. Uh, just speaking of China, uh, Canada has not banned Huawei from being part of the 5G network. The United States has urged Canada to do so. Again, this is something you know a lot about. If you were talking to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, what would you tell him to do about Huawei? Look, Huawei is not a commercial telecommunications company. Huawei is an arm of the Chinese state. Uh, its, uh, its objective is to get control of fifth-generation telecoms worldwide. Uh, it's not simply a question of uh, ensuring the security of uh, sensitive government communication channels. Uh, Huawei could have the capacity to soak up every bit of information each individual citizen uh, in a country that has a lot of Huawei fifth-generation uh, material in it. Uh, and just store that in, uh, in databases in China. That's why Australia and New Zealand, which really led the way here, they were ahead of the United States. They've effectively banned Huawei. The U.S. has. Britain has. Uh, in most respects, Germany has. Other Japan has. Uh, really, we, we need to stick together in this. And uh, I think as we, as we uh, expose what Huawei is up to, we're also opening space uh, in the free market for, for new entrants to come in who uh, won't face the incredible uh, effects of Chinese subsidies and financing that they've used to benefit Huawei in competition with real free market telecoms firms. So there's a lot at stake here, and uh, I think it also shows you a lot about how China behaves. You know, the U.S. Uh, asked for the extradition of Meng Wanzhou when she landed in Vancouver. Uh, about almost two years ago. Can Canada's been going through the extradition proceedings. How did China behave? They seized three Canadian citizens in China for no reason at all, not even having a good pretext uh, to detain them, to try and bully China. Now, you know, if that's the way China behaves now, how, how do you think they're going to behave when they have control of your fifth generation telecommunication systems? Uh, th this is going to be a difficult time for all of us. There's going to be some economic pain here. But, you know, there, there's very good reason to confront the threat when it's young. Uh, not mature and less dangerous. And I think that's what the West as a whole needs to do here. Last question, just because you mentioned Meng Wanzhou. Look, 
a lot of folks think this is a purely political game between China and the U.S., and Canada is just the rock stuck in the middle there. After all, President Donald Trump uh, was asked about it. He openly said, look, I'm happy to intervene in this case if it would help get me a trade deal. He said, if I think it's good for what will certainly be the largest trade deal ever made, which is important for national security, I'd certainly intervene if I thought it was necessary. In other words, he politicized the extradition. And now Canada, we got two Canadians in prison. We've got our, a very sour relationship with China. And you were there. Was Canada being used as a political pawn in the trade uh, issue between the U.S. and China? Uh, well, within the whole U.S. government, that was true in the mind of one person, one person only, Donald Trump, which shows why he's an anomaly. Look, a Canadian court, after extensive proceedings, has agreed that our extradition request has met the dual criminality standard that's a prerequisite for extradition. More proceedings are coming. In legal terms, this is uh, by the book. Uh, and there's only one person in the United States, I think, who doesn't understand that. And I think in a few months, he won't be president anymore. Ambassador Bolton, uh, a pleasure to have you on the program today. Uh, good to have a conversation. And thanks for joining us. And take good care. Thanks for having me. All right, that is the former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump. His new book out, and it's an interesting read, The Room Where It Happened. All right, you can see the entire interview with John Bolton. Just go to ctvnews.ca slash QP and check that out. But coming up on the program, two-tiered healthcare. Uh, the debate about private versus public COVID testing heats up. Who's accountable? The Scrum is next with special guest CTV News infectious disease specialist Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. We talk about that and lots more. Stay right here with Question Period. We're at a tipping point in this pandemic. Not only is the second wave underway, Yesterday, we hit the highest daily recorded cases, well above what we saw this spring. It's getting worse. In Ontario and Quebec, the restrictions are getting more severe as the cases of coronavirus go up. Can COVID-19 be contained? Meanwhile, the political and medical leadership is facing mounting pressure to sort out the testing tie-ups and all the confusion. Toronto's so overwhelmed with unprocessed COVID tests, it stopped doing an essential contact tracing work that helps prevent community spread. And now, only those exhibiting symptoms can go for a COVID test in the province of Ontario. So as private clinics try to capitalize on COVID by offering expensive tests for $100 of dollars a pop, are Canadians teetering on the edge of two-tier healthcare? What needs to be done? Let's bring in the scrum to find out. Joyce Napier is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter with the Canadian Press. And our special guest for this round is CTV News Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Abdu Sharkawi. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Thanks for being here, Doc. I got to start with you um, because people see the numbers, but you see the reality. How bad is it on the front lines? What are you seeing right now? Well, we're seeing our, no our numbers rise incrementally, both in the general medical ward and slowly in the ICU. And we know that we're still in catch-up mode from all of the surgical procedures and all the delays in care for patients that were missed during the first wave. And so it's exceedingly alarming that now we're seeing numbers as high as they are uh, throughout the province of Ontario, particularly in the GTA. Um, and uh, the situation doesn't seem to be getting better day by day. Uh, we're all bracing ourselves for things to potentially reach a crisis scenario once the flu season hits and 
obviously that's causing a great deal of apprehension around the medical community. Steph, this was predicted months ago. They said the second wave is going to be worse than the first wave. I think Dr. Sharkawi was one of the ones that, that was talking about that with us. Now you've got shortages of reagent, you've got shortages of swabs, you've got long testing lineups, you've got ICU wards filling up, you've got the government extending programs. Steph, what went wrong here? Are governments accountable for not being prepared? I think, you know, it's a, it's a perfect storm of things to some degree, but I'm mindful on the testing. Let's all think back, you know, to one of the first known cases in the country. And who was it? It was the Prime Minister's wife, and she brought it back with her from abroad. And at the time it was, Prime Minister, are you going to get tested for COVID-19? And they said to him, no, you know, you're asymptomatic, and we have a shortage of reagent, we have a shortage of swabs, so we're not going to waste a test on you. And we're literally back to that day now. How is that even possible? And the question becomes, who at the end of the day is responsible for this? And there are so many layers here, from the public health system um, at the very local level, all the way to Health Minister Patty Haidu. But then there's also the, the question about the responsibility of individual Canadians, who, yes, they are dealing with some measure of COVID fatigue, and yes, asymptomatic carriers are hard to find and track and trace. But then there are the folks we hear about in Ottawa who, you know, they were feeling a little sick, but still decided to go to a wedding. I mean, do people have no compassion anymore for their fellow Canadian and no concern about the damage literally they as individuals can do to the entire system? Joyce, that has raised the question to alleviate the testing stress. Some are going to private clinics getting $250 tests. In fact, some politicians have done that because they actually have the access to that. Will the crisis, uh, uh, one element of it, lead to calls for a two-tier health care system, something that Patty Haidu says violates the Canada Health Act, nonetheless, it's happening? Yes, and, and Patty, Patty Haidu can say that, but she also has access to the private clinic to go get herself tested, paid for by Canadian taxpayers. So, you know, um, I think that we should stop listening a little bit to that and look at the reality of it. Today, if you want to have, for instance, a cataract operation, you can wait two years or you can pay $4,000. So. There are cases, more and more cases, where uh, our system is no longer universal, but it is a two-tier system. Dr. Sharkawi, I mean, you, you've been preparing for this moment for seven months when the pandemic arrived. What are you disappointed in that is not ready now? What, what did you think was going to be here that is not there that you could say, I can't believe I'm in this situation as a doctor? Well, the testing infrastructure, again, that's been the common refrain here. We all predicted that there was going to be a second wave. I'm not sure everybody agreed on the timing and the potential intensity of that second wave, but knowing that we were going to have thousands upon thousands of new cases and not having a testing infrastructure that was ready to meet those demands is concerning. Not having a rapidly accessible and cheap testing system that could be uh, accessed outside of a medical setting is something that I think is a major shortfall in, in this pandemic management at this point in time. Um, and to the point of you know two-tier testing and private clinics you know or private tests, let's not forget that the disproportionate uh, majority of people who are affected by this virus are those with very little resources, those that live in racialized and marginalized communities. Those are the same people that are having difficulty accessing tests right now because they have to book online. So I have major misgivings about the right. uh, potential use 
use uh, of a private system here to try and alleviate the so-called pressure on the system. I think that would be a mistake. I'm glad you brought that up, doctor, because there's a profound connection between the ongoing health crisis and the economic crisis. Steph, the Prime Minister announced new extensions of programs, uh, wage subsidy extensions, rent subsidy changes and extensions. If we're in the second wave of the health crisis, are we in the second wave of the economic crisis? And what does that mean politically? I mean, what it means politically is, you, you, again, if we twin the issues between the health crisis and the economic crisis, and we watch the way provincial and local health authorities are responding right now, they're moving into much more of a targeted shutdown approach, right? They're targeting hotspots. They're looking at specific regions. And back in March, when the country shut down and the government moved fairly quickly to implement broad national programs for everybody, that was then. We learned a lot during that first wave, as the doctor said, about the marginalized populations that are disproportionately affected by this. So the question becomes, as we move into this second wave, does the financial supports and otherwise need to start being targeted accordingly? And I'll take as an example affordable housing. I mean, we're moving into the winter months. People who are living in substandard housing conditions can no longer hang out at the park, can no longer go for a walk around the block. This congregate living, surely it is going to be the site of more super spreading events. What is the government doing immediately and quickly to alleviate that problem, both in terms of rent assistance, both in terms of providing other forms of housing? You know, they have to start putting out these tiny little fires that both have a health implication and an economic implication and one hopes that within all levels of government there are people doing this work so they don't say we're not here in March saying just like we did with testing just like we've done with so many other things how did they not see this coming because we have the evidence now and they need to act on it. Guys just quickly before I go uh, we had the leader of the Green Party on and Dr. Shokari this is a medical question she wants a by-election potentially in her riding in downtown Toronto to be stopped, the Prime Minister is now saying it will go on. Just as a medical point of view, is it safe to have a, a by-election right now in a, in a riding? Would you say that's a good idea? I don't think any situation where you're going to have to have people lining up um, in potentially close proximity to one another uh, in, in droves is a good idea. Uh, I think it's abundantly obvious from what we're seeing uh, down south of the border uh, that anything that you can do remotely or virtually is probably a lot safer. So uh, I would agree it's not a safe uh, venture to, to go through with right now. All right, guys, i got to leave it there. Uh, first of all, thanks for joining us, and I wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. you got to do it under one roof, and all to our viewers as well. Take care. Maybe you have a small turkey this year because you got to stay with your loved ones inside. Take good care if you're safe and happy. Have a lot of gratitude. There's lots to be thankful for still amidst a very difficult time. And if you can, help out someone who doesn't have as much to give thanks for, and there's a lot of people out there as well. Take care. We'll be back here in seven short days.